0: to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at EdenWorshipCenter.co. we reading Genesis 14, verses 12
1: through 24. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants. And defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take, take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol and Mamre take their share. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you that we, we can have it, and read it, and worship you so freely here in America. Um... Uh, Thank you for sending Jesus uh, to die for us, uh, us who do not deserve it in the least. I uh, wish to Pastor John to you as you to bless his, uh, what he's gotten and what he's, what he's uh, speaking for you today. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Good morning. It is good to see everybody here this morning. And uh, just if you think about it today, uh, so I was talking with different families uh, last week. Many of them said they were going to be out of town this weekend, uh, either camping or doing a family trip. So if you think about it today, be praying for those families who aren't here this morning as they're spending time together as a family, because that is such an important time, uh, sometimes a set-aside time where it's just family. Uh, So be praying for our families who aren't here this morning as they're camping or traveling or whatever it is they may be doing during their family time this weekend. All right, here we are continuing our walk through Genesis, and we're up to chapter 14 now, and uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to chapter 14 there, and if you look at those first several verses, you can see why we had Tony just read from 12 on, Amraphel, uh, Shinar, Arioch, Elasar, um, Cheddar Maker. Uh, I'm just all kinds of interesting names there, uh, and these. Uh, instead of reading through all these names, I'll give you a rundown of what that passage is saying. It's saying that uh, these these five kings, the uh, king of Sodom and Gomorrah, and a uh, uh, few other kings there. We're paying tribute to this Cheddalaumer, uh, this, this particular king. And they paid tribute to him for 12 years, and on the 13th year, they all decided, you know what, no more of this paying tribute. We're going to rebel against him and throw off his yoke. Well, Cheddarmaker the king uh, decided he didn't like this. So he gathered together some of his allies, and he started walking, marching those armies through the land, taking back the land. Well, the, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and three other kings decided they didn't like this. So they got together, their armies, and went out to fight Chederlaumer uh, and these other kings. Well, King Chederlaumer and I guess it'd probably be Chederlaumer uh, if, if you're saying it like a Hebrew. But he wasn't a Hebrew, so we'll just stick with Chederlaumer. Anyhow, he completely routed them. He completely decimated these five kings who were rebelling against him Uh, so much, it says that these five kings and their armies turned around and ran. And it talks about how there were tar pits in the area, and a lot of them fell into tar pits, and the others ran away and hid in the hills. So this left the cities completely open to these, these four kings who were trying to take the land back. And it says that they just marched right into Sodom, took all the people... Captive and took all the possessions of Sodom and it says there in verse 12 They also took Lot the son of Abram's brother Who was dwelling in Sodom along with his possessions and went their way So Lot was in uh, all these people who had been taken captive So that's what all those names have to do with our passage. That's that's the background of what's going on today And back in chapter 13, verses 12 and 13, we we hear this about, well, starting with verse 11, actually, we hear this about Lot. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other, that's Lot and Abram. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And then, fast forward back to chapter 14, verse 12, when you read this again, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. So, we find in chapter 13 that Lot pit, pitched his tents near Sodom. Uh, and then, here in verse 14, He's actually living in Sodom, and he had moved near Sodom, which we know was a city of great wickedness, and so he had moved near there, and he had become comfortable enough living near there that eventually he moved into Sodom, and it could be pictured as pitching his tent near wickedness and becoming so accustomed to it, so desensitized to it, then he moved into the midst of it and then suffered the consequences of being that comfortable with sin. At least that's how I've always heard it taught. That whenever somebody has taught on Lot and pitching his tents near Sodom and then moving into Sodom, it's always this picture of how uh, he was so comfortable with sin to start with that he soon fell into it himself and was completely okay with living in Sodom amongst this wickedness and how he suffered the consequence of it and being captured. And it's a warning to us not to be too comfortable around sin, lest we become desensitized to it and suffer the consequences. And one thing I do whenever I'm preaching on a passage and studying through it, I know everything I've been taught on that passage I know all of the the sermons I've heard the articles I've read uh, and what I do when I'm studying through is I take all of that and I try to set it aside so that it's just what I'm reading and not what I've been taught and what I've been told and over in Acts 17 Paul and Barnabas had just been kicked out of Thessalonica And when I say kicked out, I mean they had been persecuted, beaten, and just horribly treated in Thessalonica. And so it says they went to Berea. And it says this in Acts 17 10 through 12. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night, away from Thessalonica, away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, it says, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, and with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So it says that these Bereans were noble-minded, that it's the apostle Paul. I mean, this is Paul teaching them. I mean, if Paul were to stand before us today and and preach, most of us probably wouldn't even look in our Bibles to see if what he was saying was right. But Paul was saying, hey, you know what? These Bereans were noble-minded. They took what Paul said and then took it back to the Scriptures to make sure that what Paul was saying lined up with Scripture. I encourage you all to be good Bereans. It doesn't matter who teaches it. It doesn't matter how many books they've written. It doesn't matter how long they've been on TV. It doesn't matter how many uh, initials are behind their name because of all their degrees. There's only one thing that matters. Is what they are teaching true to Scripture? That's all that matters. It doesn't matter how prestigious they may be. Is what they are teaching actually what Scripture says? Be good Bereans. Be good, Brians, Take what you hear being taught. Take what you've read in a book. Make sure it lines up with scripture. Because as I was uh, getting ready for this, all of my notes were along the lines of Lot becoming comfortable in his sin and suffering the consequences for it. I mean, that's, that's what my notes were because that's how I'd always heard this. But then as I was studying deeper, I found something else uh, turn over to 2nd Peter chapter 2 now did lot do some pretty heinous things yet yeah, when we get over into ver- chapter 19 we're gonna find lot doing some things that were like seriously he did that and so we often picture lot as an example of what not to do that he was somebody who had gotten so comfortable in sin that he himself fell into it and now he is our warning for doing that but here's what second Peter 2 verses 7 and 8 have to say and if he talking about God if he rescued righteous lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked for as that righteous man lived among them day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard I'm like, wait a second, you mean lot, the person we point to as being unrighteous because he got so comfortable and caught up with sin, that that lot, the one who is used as the warning to us all about what happens when we become comfortable with sin, that's the one that God is calling righteous, the one who later on in chapter 19 says to the men, here, take my daughters instead of these men that are my guests, that? lot righteous the lot who was comfortable with the sin around him except this says the exact opposite of what I'd always been taught this said that he was grieving constantly over the sin that was going on around him that he wasn't comfortable with sin as we were often taught from this passage in chapter 14 I had to completely redo my sermon and then I realized something. We, we look at something like in chapter 19 and what Lot did in chapter 19, which I'm not, I don't want to steal too much thunder from whichever one of us, me, Matter Harold, is preaching on chapter 19 later. We look at that and then look at what Lot did. Therefore, he is in the category of unrighteous. And I realized that if in this room, if you looked at me and judged me by one snapshot of my life. If you guys saw one snapshot of some of the worst, of, of the worst thing I did in my life, you wouldn't want me on this stage right now. Because I'm far from perfect. And how many of us would want somebody to take a single snapshot of the worst thing we ever did and then declare from that single action that we are unrighteous and should be used as a warning to everybody. How many of us in here would want God to judge us by that one action? We find he didn't do that with Lot. Think of this, that that instance in chapter 19. Lot lived many more years than that one instant instance we're not told of anything during those many years of his life but we take the one time we know that he failed miserably and then we have judged him by it I would hate to be judged in such a way because my life is a lot more than one action that I commit one sin I commit And that's why I love the song we sang. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. I cannot fathom what my eternal destiny would be like if God took one instance from my life and said, unrighteous. Because Christ's righteousness is what I have. If we judged one another... By an instance of unrighteousness, we would all have to stay away from each other. I can't be around that person because look what they did this one time. I can't be around that person because look what they did this one time. And honestly, it was very convicting to me because I, I like to think of myself as a not judgmental person. But in the way I thought of Lot was completely judgmental and I could say well it's because that's what I've been taught that's what I was taught well what it means is I wasn't a good Berean that's why it's so important for us to be good Bereans there was more to lot than this one instance and there's more to you than the one instance where you failed miserably and God knows that because who is it who declared rot who declared Lot righteous, God. God knew there was more to Lot than this instance of his failure. God looked at Lot's heart. And Lot's heart was a heart that grieved over sin. God doesn't look at just one instance of your life. God looks at you, believers, through the lens of the righteousness of Christ. You know, the enemy wants to come in, and he's the accuser of the brethren, Scripture tells us. He wants to remind you of all the times you have failed. And yet, over in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God chose us before the foundations of the world. Now, did God already know every single time you would fail? Yes. Did God already know every sin you would commit? Yes. Did God know every time you would turn your back to him in rebellion? Yes. God chose you with his eyes wide open about what kind of a person you are about what kind of a person I am and instead of looking at me in all my rebellion and my sin and my wickedness instead of looking at me and going I don't want that in my family instead of doing that God said I want you he looked at me And said he wanted me and so he sent his son so that just like with lot I could be declared righteous before him because of the righteousness of Christ our sins they are many but his mercy is more I think what we learn from this instance of lot and him living near and then in sodom isn't that christians shouldn't be in places where there is sin going on how many guys live in town is there sin going on in your town <laughs> no that we can't live anywhere guys <laughs> uh, unless we're just in this like little commune with ourselves There <laughs> there's still be sin <laughs> yeah that's right all right, uh, we're going to be hermits, uh, still be sin. Man, <laughs> nowhere in Scripture does God say Lot was wrong or in sin because of where he lived. We do find that God declared him righteous, and then we know that his heart grieved and was tormented by the sin going on around him. So I would ask you this Are you grieved and tormented? by the sin that is going on around you much like the the catechism that we read this morning are you grieved so that you have to stand up when there is sin going on around you is your heart burdened by those around you who you know are not believers are you grieved and burdened that's something we can learn from lot And here's something else we can learn from Lot. Was he a righteous man? Yes. What happened when these kings descended on Sodom? He got taken prisoner along with everybody else. He got taken prisoner along with everybody else. Uh, Matthew 5.45, Jesus is talking and he says this. For the Father makes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, Jesus is saying, Good things and bad things happen to both the righteous and the unrighteous. God never guarantees that when because we are righteous, that nothing bad will ever happen to us. Say, but wait, one of the songs we said, we sang this morning said he is the Lord has promised good to us. So how can you say that bad things will happen? Here's what happens when we talk about, like Romans eight twenty eight. For we know that all things work together for good. Or sing a song that says the Lord has promised good to me. We then define good, and then expect God to act according to our definition of good. But if we look at Romans eight twenty eight, where it says, "For we know that all things, uh, God works all things for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose." He then goes on in verses 29 through 32 to define what good means. In those verses, God defines good as this, making you more like Jesus. God promises us this, that everything that he brings into our lives, he will use to make us more like Jesus. Because what is better than that? What is better than that? To be more and more like Jesus every day. And God says He will make sure that everything in our lives helps us get there. As believers, as followers of Christ, 1 John 3 says this that everybody who has this hope in Christ will purify themselves to be just like Him. In other words, When we have that hope, that's what we want, is to be more and more like Jesus. And God says, because your desire is to be more and more like Jesus, he says, I will work everything to bring that desire about in your life. That's how much God loves us. That the greatest motivation in our lives to be like Jesus, God does everything to make it happen for our good. To make us more like Jesus and that means sometimes it rains on us sometimes how many guys sometimes it's not rain it is a storm sometimes it storms but it is because God is working to make us more like Jesus what an incredible God we have that he would do everything to bring about our greatest heart's desire to be like Jesus. So that's what I learned about Lot this week. Again, I had to completely scrap several hours of of my sermon, uh, well, of my notes. Believe me, I didn't scrap any hours of my sermon. We still got like four hours left. So, Uh, but it really was incredible. As I went through here, and my mind was blown when I read that passage out of Second Peter. I've read it before. I don't know why. I've read the, through the Bible. I've read that before, but it just never really clicked until this week. Lot was a righteous man. What an incredible God we have that he doesn't look at us through a singular action. He will look at us through who his son is in our lives and declare us righteous. What an incredible God we have. Then in verse 13, it says, then one who had escaped, so these kings took everybody captive, it says, then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Uh, So, in other words, this guy escaped, came and told Abram, hey, Abram, your nephew's been captured. His family's been captured. They've taken everything. So, Abram gathers together 318 of his trained Fighters. He goes to some of his allies, and he and his allies go out. Now get this, five kings. Five kings have already amassed their armies and gone to fight these other four. And these four kings and their armies completely decimated these five kings and their armies. Now Abram, he gets 300 guys, goes and gets a couple of his friends and their armies... Or I should say their guys, and they go to fight against these four kings who just completely decimated five kings and their armies. Not looking real good for Abram. Yet, Abram reigns victorious. And Abram rescues Lot and his family. He recovers all the people. He recovers the possessions. And then down in verse 17 after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley and Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine he was priest of God most high so Abram finishes his defeat of these four kings and as he is returning home uh, the king of Sodom comes out And then the king of Salem, Melchizedek, comes out. Uh, And, you know, when we preach through the book of Hebrews, was that last year, a year before? Uh, When we preach through the book of Hebrews, we spend a lot of time on Melchizedek because he has talked about a lot over in the book of Hebrews. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time this morning talking about Melchizedek. Uh, But we know this from the book of Hebrews about Melchizedek, uh, that he was a foreshadow of Christ. What that means when we say he was a foreshadow, it means that he is pointing to Christ, but he wasn't Christ, he's pointing to. Now, there are a lot of uh, theories on who Melchizedek was, Um, say that some think that he was a Christophany, which is a, a fancy theological term to mean a, an Old Testament appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus. Um, he could have been, maybe, maybe not. Um, some think, I found this out this week, some believe that he is an alien, <laughs> that, uh, that Melchizedek was an unfallen Adam from another planet, and that he came here to observe how the fallen adam on this planet and his progeny um how it was going with their redemption plan so i'm i'm tempted to go with that yeah i thought that was one of the more far out i'm like oh yeah i can totally read that right there he was definitely an alien definitely Um, what we do know is this for sure he was a foreshadow of Christ that's what we learned from the book of Hebrews uh, it says that uh, just like Melchizedek had no beginning or no end figuratively uh, in other words Melchizedek just appears here we've heard nothing about him before and we hear nothing about him after so it's like he had no beginning and no end figuratively speaking and this is a foreshadow of Christ who literally as God the Son has no beginning and no ending. He is a priest. Jesus is called a priest in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, because Melchizedek had no beginning and no end, his priesthood lasts forever. And it's saying that Jesus' priesthood is like that. That as our great high priest, he will always and forever be our great high priest. And that here it says that uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Once the Mosaic Law came along, it was not allowed for a king to be a priest or a priest to be a king. That you weren't allowed to be both, according to the the Mosaic Law. You were either king or you're priest, but you could not be both. And it says that Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That Jesus is our King of Kings. And our eternal high priest. That there is no need for another king. There is no need for another high priest. We have Christ. And and, and we know that uh, that that is the foreshadowing of Melchizedek because of what we read in the book of Hebrews. And in this passage it says that uh, he brought out bread and wine. And some will talk about... uh, him bring out the the bread and wine as a foreshadowing as well of the sacrifice of Christ maybe maybe not but I do know this the text doesn't say that and and nowhere in Hebrews does it say that now what we do know is that bread and wine was a traditional show of hospitality and friendship that when when you met somebody when you you initially initially meet them or have them over you bring out bread and wine as that show of hospitality and friendship when people look at this passage and make that bread and wine more what they're doing is they're spiritualizing the text and the problem with spiritualizing is a, a passage of scripture what spiritualizing is this when you take a passage of scripture and give it a deeper meaning than what you read like in this passage does it say anything about the bread and wine other than that he brought it out no so the problem with spiritualizing a text is that then I can make it say whatever I want it to like oh lot moved close to Sodom then he moved into Sodom see we need to be careful of how comfortable we are with sin You know what? The Bible never says that about Lot. It actually says the opposite. But that is spiritualized so often that whatever sermon point I want to make, I can give Scripture a deeper meaning to make that point. Now, we just talked about how Melchizedek, there was a lot of deeper meaning to him. But here's the thing. Who wrote the Bible? God. So if God gives something a deeper meaning, can we trust that that really is the deeper meaning? Yes. Now, if man gives it a deeper meaning, can we trust that there really is a deeper meaning? No. It's pure speculation is what it is. It can never be anything more than speculation. Now, could it be a good word picture? I guess so. But remember, it's not truth. It's it's a good word picture that a man is coming up with. But it's not truth. It's not truth. So, the bread and wine here represents bread and wine. That's what it represents. Let's not make more of scripture than what God makes of it, because that's when we move into dangerous territory of making scripture mean whatever we want it to mean. So it says that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought this out. He was priest of God Most High, and it says, and he blessed him, he, Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now we just talked about how five kings and their armies got completely decimated by these four kings. Wham! They're gone. And then Abram takes a few of his friends and they're completely victorious. And here in this blessing of Melchizedek, we know why he was completely victorious. It's not because of the awesome fighting skills. I got skills. Nunchuck, bow staff. Some of you may get that, some of you may not. That's okay. It's not because of the skills of Abram's warriors, it's because God gave him the victory. And there's something really, really important and interesting about this blessing that Melchizedek speaks over Abram uh, a lot of times when we read uh, people especially in the Old Testament speaking a blessing over somebody they're saying and this will happen this will happen may God do this may God do that uh, that blessing is really focused on the person being blessed but l- let's read this blessing again blessed be Abram okay so he's focusing on Abram by god most high and then read let's read the rest of it this god most high who is possessor of heaven and earth blessed be this god most high he has delivered you your enemies into your hand notice the focus of this blessing is really on who god is it's really about who god is it's not so, he doesn't say anything about, hey, Abram, I want you to be blessed this way, or I hope God does this for you. He says, Abraham, be blessed by God most high. And let me tell you how awesome this God most high is. That's the focus of this blessing. God, the true blesser. Uh, it says that Melchizedek blessed Abram. But if you read what he says, it is obvious who is it who is the true blesser blessed be Abraham by me, because I'm so awesome and great. And he says, blessed be Abram by God most high. Blessed be Abram by God most high. It's about who God is. And that is so important for us to keep that focus. How many guys have ever felt really blessed by God? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, then... I'm going to pray that God will open your eyes so that you will see the tremendous blessings. Um, over in Ephesians 1, uh, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, blessed us, past tense, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It says that if we are believers, it says that God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It's like God has a bank account of blessings and he didn't just make a withdrawal and give you some. He just dumped the whole vault on your head. That's what God did. So it's not so much that God hasn't blessed us, it's sometimes we don't see the blessings. We're not we don't realize the blessings. Ask God to open your eyes to how much he has truly And already blessed you and that's why it's so important like Melchizedek to keep the focus on who God is God doesn't pour his blessings out on us because we deserve them God doesn't pour his blessings out on us because we're awesome God pours his blessings out on us because he is awesome and that he looks at our lives and just like with lot calls us righteous because of who christ is it is all about who god is that's why we are blessed because in christ we have been made righteous and it is through christ that he looks at us it says more about god that we are blessed than it does about us but it's also important to keep the focus on God because sometimes we either start taking blessings for granted or we don't even acknowledge, hey, Lord, thank you for blessing me. It's important to keep that focus on the blesser and not the blessing. I got saved into a movement where it was all about the blessing. And that was poured into me for seven years Seeking the blessing. Seeking the blessing. Oh, ah, seek the blesser. Seek the blesser. That is one of the most... Oh, sorry, I get passionate. (laughs) To seek the blessing is to miss the whole point of who God is. He is worth so much more than the blessing. Seek the blesser. And you know what? He'll take care of the blessing. He'll take care of the blessing. Seek Him. Seek the blesser. Let Him take care of the blessing. He knows the best way to do it. He knows what blessings you need. Don't seek the blessing. Seek Him. He is the treasure, not the blessing sorry (laughs) seek god not the blessing keep the focus where it needs to be keep the focus where it needs to be and then it says this it says and abram gave him a tenth of everything and the king of sodom said to abram give me the persons but take the goods for yourself This wasn't actually the king of Sodom being all good and kind and saying, because you did this great thing, why don't you keep these? Actually, it it was kind of like the unspoken rule of the day that the victor got the spoils. So the king of Sodom was merely saying, yeah, you're the victor, so just give me the people and take what's yours. Uh, It's not because he was being all thankful and gracious to to Abram. He was merely, merely acknowledging that the rule of thumb for the day was, to the victor belong the spoils. And then Abram says this, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, but let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Now, real quick, I want to hit one point because there is one point I want us to end on today. Abram had a conviction that I will let no man say that he provided for me except God but what did he say about Aner, Eskel, and Mamre? Yeah, let them take their share. In other words, Abram is saying, I have a a personal conviction, a personal oath that I have made, but I'm I'm not going to make these guys live according to my personal conviction. I'm not going to force them to live according to what I personally have decided for myself. There are some things in Scripture that are very black and white, It is right or it is wrong. But there are some areas where we have a personal conviction about certain things. Um, Music, entertainment, different things where God doesn't say one is right, one is wrong. And we need to have personal convictions on those things. We need to say, you know what, this is where I stand on it. Uh, The book, or the chapter... Chapter 14 of the book of Romans, actually the whole chapter is about that. When Christians have personal convictions that aren't necessarily laid down black and white in scripture, but they have a a personal conviction. And some may say, uh, the examples he gives in Romans, some may uh, eat this and others say, no, I cannot eat that. Some may honor the Lord on this day, others honor him on this day. And he says, you know what, let each man be convinced in his own mind, and let him not judge the other what do you mean you're eating that that you can't eat that well yes I can eat that well I've I, I think it's wrong okay but you can't hold me to a, your personal conviction and neither can I hold you to my personal conviction what happens when we start stepping outside of what God calls right or wrong we start getting into areas where we expect everybody else to agree with us, and if they don't, they are wrong and in sin. How many of you guys have ever had to change your mind on something before? I believe very few things the way I believed when I first got saved. Uh, now, there are many things that I hold dearly and cling to, they are hills that I absolutely will die on that creed that we're going to be saying here in a few minutes, those, those things are a hill to die on. But then there are some things that aren't. On those things, am I willing to give grace to my brother and sister who might believe differently than me? Especially when I'm not pointing to a particular passage to support what I believe. When we start taking our personal beliefs and telling everybody else they must abide by them or they are wrong, we are now in the wrong. As we see from Abram, he lived according to his personal convictions, but he didn't expect that for these other guys. In the book of Romans, that chapter 14, he then, Paul then says this, Whatever is not done in faith is sin. In other words, what he's saying is this, If you think something is wrong, whether it is or not, isn't the issue. If you think it's wrong and you do it, you are in sin. Why? Because here's what your heart just said. I think this thing is sinful, but I'm willing to do it anyhow. So he's saying, don't judge your brother. Don't say that he has to live according to your personal standard. But if it is your personal standard, one you better be convinced of it, and two, you better live by it. So that's what we see here with Abram. He was convinced, and he lived by it. But he didn't judge those who were with him and said, yeah, give them, give them their share. He didn't judge them, nor did he, did he go, hey guys, you need to like step in line behind me and do the same thing. Important point there, but here's the, the really big thing here. Philippians 4 Uh, 10 through 19, says this, and this is what I want to end on this morning. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, Paul tells the Philippians, uh, that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. In other words, you had no way to act on that concern. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's a verse we all know I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can hit a home run through him who strengthens me. It's not what it means. We just read what it means. In I can do all things, I can learn to be content through Christ who strengthens me um there are three rules of interpreting scripture first is context second is context the third is context okay so remember those three rules he is saying that through christ who strengthens me i can learn to be content in all things says yet it was kind of you to share my trouble and you philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when i left macedonia No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God, and then here's the kicker. Here it all wraps up. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul as a missionary was dependent uh, a lot of times on people giving and, and giving him help. Now there are times where he talks about being a tent maker uh, and, and earning a living, but other times like this where he says you sent this gift that I needed you provided for my needs but what does he ultimately say about that it's God who supplies every need Uh, when Karen and I were originally in life action 20 some odd years ago uh, again as as many of you know that life action we're we're stateside missionaries and so we raise support and back then as a single guy uh, there were two months in particular one month, my support check was a whopping seven bucks, and I had hair then, so I needed shampoo still. Uh, yeah. Another week, or another month, it was $11. Yeah. Even as a single guy, that's kind of, you know. Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, one time, uh, one of those months, we got on the bus. We were, we were finished at that church. We were getting on our bus to go to the next church, and there was an envelope sitting on my bus seat with $500 in it. Another time, uh, when I had a support check like that, as we were getting ready to leave to head to the next church, uh, uh, one of my team members came and said, "Um, one of the church members gave this to me to give to you as an envelope. And in that envelope was a check for $1,000. Now, I learned something through that. Supporters are wonderful, and I'm thankful for them. But God is the one who supplies my needs sometimes he does it through supporters sometimes he does it through other means but god is always my provider my god will supply every need according to what according to his riches and glory in christ jesus how many of you know that his riches and glory aren't going to be running out anytime soon he supplies our needs according to his riches and glory in other words inexhaustible source of provision and supply. And Abram recognized that. He wanted to make sure that everybody knew God most high is my provider and he alone will get the glory for it. That's what Abram was saying. I don't want anybody on this earth to say they made me rich. God alone is my provider. And as Paul says here, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so it points back to that whole blessing thing. God makes you more like Jesus. He pours his blessings out on you. Ultimately, so that he may be glorified. The more we live like Jesus, the more glorified God is. And what do we possibly want more in life than for God to be glorified in and through our lives? The ultimate aim of our very existence, the ultimate purpose of why we have life is that God may be glorified through us. He blesses us. He provides for us so that our lives may display his glory. This really was a, an amazing chapter. When I was first reading through it, especially that first part with all those names, I'm like, oh yeah, this will be, be fun to preach through. And I think I say this every time I preach on a chapter in Genesis, I'm amazed at the richness and depth that there is in the word of God. And I don't want you guys to miss out on that. So again, be good Bereans. If you were to talk to me or Pastor Matt or Pastor Harold about our week in studying and immersing ourselves in this text, we could go on and on about the blessings and the excitement and the passion that builds in us as we go through the text we're going to preach on. And then we get that passion and excitement up here and we know it doesn't translate. So I encourage you, get into the word for yourselves and you'll see why that passion exists. Remember this one thing truth is never discovered truth is revealed in other words when you are reading the word of God when something jumps out at you that's not your keen intellect picking up on something in the text that is God choosing to reveal himself to you through his word it is God himself meeting with you that's why it is so exciting that's the blessing there is and getting into the word for yourself. I encourage you, be good Bereans. Get into it for yourself. Experience the incredible blessing there is of meeting with the blesser. That's what it's all about. God, the blesser, seeking him, seeking to know him more and more through his word. Uh, if you look in your bulletins, you'll see that there are some questions there uh, for you to talk about this afternoon over lunch or maybe over dinner or maybe over your cookout tomorrow being Labor Day, uh, but I encourage you as a, as a household, take some time to think over those, talk about them, and then take time just to thank and praise our incredible God for the blesser and provider that he is now, if I could ask you all to stand with me, oh, can I get my bulletin from behind you I want us together before we celebrate what Christ has done with us through communion. Uh, If you've got your bulletin, take that with you. And I mentioned the hill to die on, the things that we tenaciously keep a hold of as followers of Christ, the things that we will not let go, the things that we will not compromise on. And the Apostles' Creed nicely sums up those things. So join me as we say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That is our battle cry. This is something that as we recite this, Think about what you're saying. This isn't just some rote prayer that we say. This is us declaring, This is the hill that I die on. These things are the things that my life is grounded and founded on. Such an incredible thing God has given us that we don't have some topsy turvy roller coaster life not knowing what is right or wrong, not knowing what we can stand on. He gives us solid rock through his word and through creeds like this. Such an incredible thing. Uh, We're going to be celebrating what Christ has done for us. Here we just talked about it. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the day, and on the third day he rose again. And it says that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We're going to take time to proclaim that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that every time we take communion, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming, the word is preaching, it says we are preaching his death, his resurrection, until he comes again. So let us preach together, let us proclaim together this morning, as believers, the death and resurrection of Christ. If you're with us this morning, and you're you're our guest, if you're a believer in Christ, please come and celebrate with us. We invite you to celebrate with us. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, right now, actually, you don't have anything to celebrate. What you do have is something to seriously think about and respond to. You can respond this morning to the fact that up to this point, you exist under the wrath of God. As we all once did, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. That all of us were children of wrath, children of disobedience. Yet, God wants to make you alive together with Christ, it tells us in Ephesians 2. And it's because of his great mercy and because of his great love for you, is what it says. God loves you deeply, he loves you dearly, and he has made a way for you to be made alive in Christ So if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, I want you to think that over and then respond to it. If you were drowning and somebody threw you a life preserver, would you continue to drown while thinking about whether or not you should grab the life preserver? No, you'd grab it. That's what I encourage you this morning to do. Grab it. Don't think about it. Grab it. If you would like to talk about it more, please come talk to me. Talk to Pastor Harold. There are many people in here who would love to talk with you more, but I invite you not to take communion this morning, but rather think over and respond to what Christ has done. Let's pray as the praise team comes forward. Father, thank you for the incredible gift of your salvation. Thank you that through the righteousness of Christ, you look at us as righteous, not because of anything we have done or earned, but simply because of Christ. I thank you that those snapshots of my life don't determine my eternal destiny. I thank you that the gift of salvation, which was freely given, is what determines my eternal destiny. Lord, I thank you for the many blessings you have so richly, lavishly poured out on my life. And Father, I ask for each person in here that you, that you would open our eyes to, to truly see what you have given us. That it's not about material possessions. But God, it's about you revealing yourself more and more to us. That we will love you more, worship you more, glorify you more, Father. God, that is the true blessing. That we may know you, the blesser. And God, may we fervently seek after you. For nothing is greater than you. Nothing, Father, in this world can compare to who you are and who you want to be in our lives. Father, open our eyes to that truth of nothing else this morning. Open our eyes to that incredible, eternal truth that you are treasure beyond compare. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. And may you be glorified as we celebrate what Christ did for us here this morning. your name we pray. Amen.
0: Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.